Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by uh, reporter Christian Calgi and Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines. It's been a busier week than most might have expected with both seismic votes in the House of Commons as well as the first approved vaccine in the world. We've got so much to talk about so let's dive straight in and begin with that huge vote that happened this week in Parliament. Now, 78 people voted against the new tiered system to replace uh, to replace the lockdown in England. And that 78 is a rather small number because, of course, it doesn't include the official opposition. Keir Starmer led his party this week to abstain on probably the most seismic parliamentary vote that affects the lives of the 55 million odd people that live in England, which is an extraordinary position for Parliament to have found itself. Really, the opposition now comes from backbench Tories and the government from frontbench Tories. Uh, the opposition don't really seem to be on the playing field at all. But this all led to a quite entertaining um, PMQs this week, because where Boris, you would have thought he might be on the back foot after seeing quite a sizeable um, rebellion, a rebellion from his own party that's bigger than his own majority. And yet he was put on the front foot this week in Prime Minister's Questions because Keir Starmer didn't have a position at all. So let's have a listen to what Boris had to say about that. When it came to protecting the people of this country from coronavirus at this critical moment, he told his troops to abstain, Mr Speaker. Captain Hindsight is rising rapidly up the ranks and has become general indecision, Mr Speaker. So Boris getting away pretty unscathed there. But there was a big reason behind that sizeable rebellion, behind quite so many Tory MPs rebelling. And that's the, the Covid recovery group, that group that's led by Mark Harper and Steve Baker, was asking to see some economic um, analysis that the government has done about what the tier system would reap across the country. And yet that analysis wasn't forthcoming. Uh, Paul, can you talk us through that? Well, uh, all along during this and for weeks, the CRG, the COVID recovery group, has been asking for evidence, specifically a cost benefit analysis. And then in the Sunday Times last weekend, there was talk of a, uh, a dashboard, uh, you know, one of these um, uh, online digital views that um, Cummings was planning, that was a digital dashboard that would tell them what's going on in what uh, areas and uh, sectors of the economy. And not unreasonably, Tory MP said, well, show us that, you've got it. And Gove refused to uh, uh, permit it to be um, released to the CRG or MPs in general. That annoyed them. I think contributed to some extent to the size of the rebellion, which was uh, 78, um, including other MPs. So they brought it upon themselves. And my worry about this is that it does kind of indicate that they're using a hunch or they're just saying in general, oh, we should, we should lock down because we know it will cause less um, uh, incidents of the, of the virus. But actually they haven't really balanced that against the damage it's doing to the economy. And I think in those circumstances, the government will not be able to get away with with a third lockdown after Christmas. Absolutely. It was actually I think... deceptive um, because 
over the weekend, Boris promised his backbenchers that there would be a cost-benefit analysis released, and we got one of sorts on Monday. And 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 the the financial, the economic section, basically just pointed to everything Rishi had said in last week's spending review. Uh, so there wasn't much extra information, and it was then that it was revealed that there was actually this sector by sector dashboard. Uh, in Whitehall with much more granular detail, devastating detail, which the government is now refusing to publish. So they lost a lot of trust on that. Yeah, the dossier, yeah, peculiar the dos- thing about what Michael Gove's defence of not publishing that document was that it was all in the public domain anyway, or they just scraped together publicly available information and collated it in one area. Well, if that's the case, Michael Gove, then why not release it? What do you have to be afraid of if you've just collected together publicly available data? Why is it a problem to then show that to MPs or indeed the wider country? That's the sentiment that um, Steve Baker gave me when I speak, spoke to him on the morning of the votes. And, and it really did perplex quite a few of those MPs. And remember, the rebellion was bigger than the size of the majority, more than 40 MPs. I think it was around the region of 55 MPs who rebelled from the Tory side. That meant that if Keir Starmer had any steel whatsoever, any semblance of a backbone and voted against it, the, this tier system would have fallen. It would have been defeated in the House of Commons. The, the dossier they did present, the short dossier, had the feel of one of my Monday morning school projects done on a bus. You know, it was kind of <laughs> put, put together in a bit of a rush and didn't really give you much information. So I'll give them a, a D minus for that one. Absolutely. That didn't stop, however, um, Boris trying to woo all these Tory MPs right up until the hour before the vote. Uh, Paul, can you talk us through that? Well, he tried to use his charm. The man is not without some charm. Um, He made his case to MPs. He used uh, 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 the metaphor that we're on a long journey. The kids in the back are going, are we nearly there yet? And we are nearly there, he claimed. So let's not uh, divert now was his point. Let's just stick the last bit. And he knows it's all very difficult. And he told them that he didn't come into politics to intervene in businesses. And he's intervened on a scale we haven't seen since the Second World War. Um, he's, he's, his sentiments fell on deaf ears, though. I don't think there were many people who switched over. It was noticeable that a few of the 29 intake were included in the rebels, and they had been given a very unsubtle warning in press briefings that anybody who votes against the government is going to get a two-year penalty and not have any promotion prospects. It didn't, still didn't stop people. One can only uh, imagine, therefore, that at the end of this week of uh, Tory party uh, machinations, MPs may have been hoping for a rather large drink uh, upon the conclusion of lockdown, and it won't have escaped anyone's notice that, uh, for some reason, the whole debate became centred around scotch eggs, um, a filthy snack that I wouldn't personally go anywhere near. But this became the uh, byword for what is a substantial meal. And Michael Gove made a right tit of himself trying to uh, explain it was, and then suggesting it wasn't, and then other cabinet. <laughs> In. Uh, we went, upon learning that uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle was to reintroduce booze into Commons restaurants, 
uh, on the second, we went to the House of Commons press office and asked whether a Scotch egg, as is served on the dining menu, would count as a substantial meal. And unfortunately, it won't. So to any MPs listening, you will have to uh, use our tax money to buy a subsidised steak to have with your wine. I know it's really difficult life, but we've all got to pull together at this trying time. What's most ridiculous about this is that the, the scotch egg on the House of Commons menu there wasn't just some tiny little scotch egg. It was a whole scotch egg meal with an enormous set of, set of paraphernalia and whatever. You know, that, to me, that seems substantial. And, and when you try and micromanage or, or from the centre, from government, try and try and pick every different billions and billions of scenarios that people might face and try and um, have different individual rules that you're inevitably going to get in. To be fair, the lobby doesn't help when it comes to asking questions about all those individual tiny little situations uh, we just end up in what does seem like farce well the, the mm, media loves it i mean the scotch eggs were on three front pages i think the next day uh, as if that was the key this uh worry for the nation about whether a scotch egg was going to get them a pint or not but, but of course, the reason why we're all talking about Scotch eggs is that in tier two, which just over half the country has now been plunged into, uh, in order to get alcohol, in order to get a pint at a pub or whatever, you have to have a substantial meal as well. Now, we ran an interesting piece this week reporting on an IEA uh, analysis of where this whole anti-alcohol uh, sentiment has come from because it does seem pretty rapidly that the country has has gone into a bit of hysteria about this or certainly the politicians have and somehow alcohol is seen as this really really dangerous thing when it comes to covid all alcohol all alcohol sales in all pubs restaurants bars everything in wales is now illegal so where has all this evidence come from well it no, turns because... out because there's uh, been a few papers that I've seen that Chris Snowden from the IA has highlighted that point mm. out that alcohol in the uh, mouth and upper upper areas of the throat actually kills the virus. So you know, <laughs> I'd say keep safe and keep neat alcohol in your mouth at all times. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there was an Eastern European country that advised people to get drunk in the early stages of this pandemic. Um, but no, it turns out. Go on. I'm pretty sure there was an Eastern European leader who said alcohol kills coronavirus, and unfortunately, he did end up getting coronavirus. So he clearly wasn't drinking <laughs> yeah. enough. I remember that was in April or something. That was, it seems like a world away. But but no, the the whole reasoning behind the government's anti-alcohol, pro-temperance, prohibition almost strategy comes from a few papers about where the virus spread, um, and. Chris Snowden of the IEA went through these papers and, and uh, produced this report that we reported on this week that shows actually most of the papers that the government used to show that bars and pubs were responsible for the spread of the virus came from before any virus measures were enacted in pubs. So yes, of course, in crowded bars in February, the virus was being spread. But is that completely comparable to the way that tables are socially distanced and uh, hand sanitizers everywhere? And there are all of these different rules about uh, whether you can stand up with a mask on or, you know, whatever, you know, it's not comparing like with like. And the 
uh, and the peculiar nature of this government prohibition off the back of all of this stuff that was mainly researched before all the changes in the pubs that we know, before these COVID secure venues were certified, uh, it doesn't seem like it matches up all that well. It does seem like a very odd path for the government to have gone down on the back of so little evidence. And especially uh, given the, the government is trying to mitigate this all with a £1,000 payment to so-called wet pubs. Uh, and that's for the whole of December. I saw one landlord on social media today say that last year they took in £175,000 in December. And rather than re-evaluating the science, letting pubs open in a, a responsible way, the government is giving them a thousand pounds, which I think doesn't buy much more than a couple of barrels of lager. Well, the most ridiculous thing about this is that we've got this bubble situation for Christmas for five days where three households can be together into a bar or a pub. And it's, I'm sorry, which of those two venues, uh, a household versus a hospitality venue, is going to be more COVID secure? It's going to be the one that has been certified by the government as COVID secure. It's far safer, obviously, to meet another family in a pub, a pub that is that has to be clean die heaven that has all these rules about masks and about social distance and, and all this stuff and, and probably plastic screens in a lot of them as well the idea that that is less safe than inviting two other households into your household for five days is ludicrous and yet here we are. But of course, it wasn't just England that had this uh, ridiculous temperance mindset when it came to alcohol. As I mentioned earlier, the whole of Wales banned the sale of alcohol in pubs, bars and, uh, and restaurants. And as a result of that, the first minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, received a hilarious letter that we ran on the site from a pub association in North Wales that has over 100 pubs in its group. And they sent the first minister a letter banning him from entry of all of their pubs for antisocial behaviour. And the antisocial behaviour, of course, was, to, was, was his banning of socialising within pubs. It's a very good letter, and uh, do read the article. Uh, Wednesday was good news, though. Uh, the UK uh, medicines regulator, pharmaceutical regulator, the MHRA, approved Pfizer, the first uh, major nation in the world to approve a vaccine. Uh, this ran into another argument because Matt Hancock, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Gavin Williamson all attributed the early approval of Pfizer's new vaccine to Britain Brexiting and having that freedom of manoeuvre to do things differently. Uh, which uh, I think it's, it's fair to say the other 28 nations of the EU did not approve it because they all wanted to move in lockstep, so a little bit slower to keep that solidarity and unity that they're putting, prioritising over saving lives by vaccinating as soon as possible. This led into a big route, and depending on whether you're a Brexiteer or a Remainer, you take your choice. Um, the German foreign uh, health minister, though, did say that Britain not being within the EU did enable them to approve the vaccine sooner, not because the regulations prevent European countries uh, approving it, but because they all wanted to do it at the same time. And uh, that means they're going a little bit slower, which is ironic when Pfizer are manufacturing the drug in Belgium. 
Yeah, I mean, here's the, here's the really peculiar thing, because this turned into a whole big row. Yes, of course, technically, we are still operating under the uh, auspices of EU law until the end of this month. But politically, the EU decided to move together, to move as one. And because we're not in the EU, we decided to use our own world-class regulatory agency to check out this vaccine by ourselves. And that means we will, we will save more lives because of this decision. We'll start vaccinating our most vulnerable people before people on the EU in the EU start vaccinating people and more lives will be saved. This stuff really matters not playing games about political solidarity, but actually saving lives. That's what really, really counts here. Um, but when Gavin Williamson was asked about this question on LBC on Thursday morning, he, he didn't have the most eloquent answer. He could have answered quite truthfully that the EU decided to move in lockstep. We decided to uh, move as an independent country and do it ourselves. And that obviously has a difference. Um, but instead, he had a very peculiar answer. Let's let's listen in. Well, I, I just reckon we've got the very best people in this country and we've obviously got the best medical regulators, much better than the French have, much better than the Belgians have, much better than the Americans have. That doesn't surprise me at all because we're a much better country than every single one. Not exactly the uh, answer I think a lot of us would have gone with. Clearly meant as a joke, but not being taken quite so well by many on the continent. Um, that being said, the continent had their own problems to deal with this week, didn't they, Calgary? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, whatever was happening in Britain was just completely surpassed by what was going on uh, in Belgium, uh, because the morning, I think, of, the, of, of Wednesday this week, we got the incredible story outlined that the police in Belgium had broken up a basically a gay male orgy. And among those involved had been an MEP and diplomat who had claimed immunity from publishing their names. Um, it's also reported that this MEP had tried escaping through a window and had only given up when he injured himself. Uh, coincidentally, uh, a, a few days beforehand, a Hungarian MEP had resigned. Uh, had, had, had given himself, uh, had given up in his career, give, uh, had resigned, and it eventually came out that yes, it was this Hungarian MEP, and I'm not going to try pronouncing the guy's name. But what you might want to know, or what you may have missed, is that this Hungarian MEP is um, an ally of Orban. He helped rewrite the constitution to hammer home the importance of heterosexual marriage. Um, and it, it appears, I think, Tom, you also spotted this. Someone's pointed out this isn't the first Orban-related sex escapade. There's been a paedophile court with pornography and another um, orgy incident of some sort. And, um, you know, whatever's happening in Britain... I can only imagine Hungarian journalists are having a whale of a time at the moment. I mean, it, it does always seem that the sort of strictest, most moralistic, most socially conservative politicians are always the ones that get caught up in this sort of debauchery. It's always the case. Um, I, I think I, I want to mention that um, he resigned on the Monday, but the orgy was found, even though it wasn't reported until the next week, the orgy was, was on the Friday night. 
um, and it was it was above a bar, and police burst in um, to find these thirty or so uh, naked men, including diplomats and, a, and an MEP. But I mean, the most ridiculous thing here is that it reminded me that all MEPs in Belgium are treated as diplomats and get diplomatic immunity uh, from the press. So if there's an embarrassing story about an MEP and it happens in Belgium, they can claim immunity and make sure their name doesn't appear in that story, which is quite frankly an affront to democracy. Um, but thankfully in this case it was found out. <laughs> I should say, given he's one of the framers of the uh... Hungarian constitution, which ban bans um, gay marriage. He is married to a woman. Oh, so that, that explains it then. Clearly, he didn't want to allow gay marriage because otherwise he'd have to get gay married to a man and he couldn't have his 30 people orgies. Um, there we are. <laughs> so he's not a hypocrite. Oppressed people have to find control their actions. <laughs> he was just very successful. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, not go down this route. Yeah. <laughs> family podcast. <laughs> Guido is a family website. Okay, well, moving to matters um, related to trade, but also domestic, the Trade Department has appointed a, three, uh, a free market trio of uh, non-executive members of its board, including um, a name that many people listening to this podcast will know well, Douglas Carswell, the former MP for Clacton from 2005 to 2017, uh, first a Tory MEP, um, first a Tory MP, um, and then a UKIP MP. Um, he is now sitting as a as a non-exec board member of the trade department alongside two um very renowned free market thinkers it seems that this department um after appointing both dan hannon and tony abbott um, and a whole bunch of think tank people to various advisory positions it has now appointed three more this is becoming an incredibly sound free market department and so whatever else the government's doing whatever the treasury's um spending a whole heap load of money on whatever at least there's one department in this government that is absolutely full to the brim of proper free market thinkers and it i got wind that it was being it started to be referred to amongst uh, a batch of spads of special advisors as the ministry of sound <laughs> and it wasn't just uh the uh Ministry of Sound, as you say, that was appointing these sort of people, because we also had news this week that CCHQ and very SW1P insider news, but it does matter. Uh, CCHQ have appointed a new vice chair for think tank relations, which is a role I can't remember uh, seeing. And, and this government, CCHQ, have had a very uh, tight relationship with think tanks. We just think about how many spads have made the move uh, from Wonkery to Spabdom. Uh, that wasn't the only move. We also saw Dan Hannon, another site fan favourite amongst the Tory grassroots, become a new sort of international champion for the party. And it comes amongst a continuing swathe of appointments of very interesting people, and especially uh, filling the ranks with a lot of these new 2019 intakes. And we ran a piece on the site a couple of weeks ago about the sheer numbers, a majority of the government's PPSs are now uh, MPs that have only been in Parliament for less than a year. And I 
I've never seen party management like this. Um, and, you know, it's similarly related that this week we broke the news that that 2019 intake of 109 new Tory and Peter are now organising uh, into what they describe as a caucus, like the ERG or the COVID recovery group or the China research group, to try and, you know, organise better to push the government to get a stronger unified voice on the media. So they're having uh, uh, chairman elections, executive board elections that are going to conclude around the 16th of December, I seem to remember. I think that WhatsApp has a, uh, a role in all this. I think it's easier to organise these groups now on WhatsApp. I think it's harder for the whips to do their job because they're either in the group or they're not. So uh, it's easy to organise a factional thing. It's easy to uh, organise a rebellion. And WhatsApp is having consequences uh, for political whipping that we didn't foresee which I think is probably healthy because sometimes I think the whipping system is too strong. So this um, makes party management more difficult, but probably better for democracy. Absolutely. A stronger legislature is always good to be able to push back against the executive, which uh, is, is overly dominant in our system. And it, it does start to feel like Parliament's sort of aping a bit of, the, uh, of, of what the US Congress has been doing for decades now, which is organising these formal caucuses and having, you know, you, you'll have the Freedom Caucus or you'll have various others that push for particular policy directions. That's no bad thing. That's quite useful for democracy and for holding the executive to account. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, they tend to call them research groups rather than caucuses because they can uh, spend some of their expense money on a secretariat, which usually means a couple of uh, young wonks and assistants who work on the issues of interest to that group. You mentioned the Ministry of Sound. One department that definitely is not the Ministry of Sound is BIS, the business department. They have... Uh, uh, well, why does it exist for a start? It was at one point a manifesto commitment to abolish the BIS and get rid of the business department. And I just think it's mainly because they want to give Alok Sharma just about every job under the sun, <laughs> I think. Well, there is that point. <laughs> but so the story we had uh, this week was that the BIS had paid for China to get advice on how to grow rice. China, one of the biggest producers of rice in the world, has been farming rice for thousands of years, yet Biz is paying, paid £478,000 of taxpayers' money to send advisors on how to grow rice to China. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think foreign aid, such as it is, should be for emergencies, for flooding, famine, earthquake, not to send consultants to countries like China that have a space program, nuclear weapons. I mean, China spends currently, I think, five billion pounds a year equivalent on its space program. And yet we send them millions in foreign aid. It doesn't make any sense. Why are we sending foreign aid to countries that have lunar programs and are literally gonna land men on the moon very soon? Paul, did you say that they spend five was, billion it, a year on their space program? 
because that's less yeah, than we spend on foreign aid. If we were to spend five billion pounds a year on on <laughs> our good. space program instead of foreign aid, we'd we'd have a Brit on the moon by this point. China this week landed its third <laughs> rover on the moon. Its third right. rover that's going to fire back up again and and bring a piece of the moon back down to earth. I mean, what on earth? We're one of the largest economies in the world, and, and we don't have a, a, a any sort of significant space program, so to speak. I mean, yes, we do have a tiny little one, but it mainly operates within the auspices of the European Space Agency. The idea we couldn't be doing what China's doing is 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 so depressing. And the future frontier is space, and he who controls, you know, the 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 space will control what's down below. So it's it's a security issue, it's a technology issue. We shouldn't be vacating uh, the space race to the superpowers. And most of all, we shouldn't be giving aid money to countries with space programs. I mean, exactly. surely this should be the first the first thing that sort of uh, people in government do when they when they sort of count the beans and see see where the tax money is going. Are we there throwing is a whole bunch of money to a country that has a bloody space program? There is an opportunity coming up in the, on the legislative agenda very soon. Um, Rishi Sunak said that if the cut from 0.7% to 0.5% of GNI is going to be permanent in terms of foreign aid, rather than just for one year, he is going to have to bring an amendment to the, the Act. Now, I think that would be a good point to put a couple of limitations on foreign aid. One, no foreign aid to any nation that has nuclear weapons, declared or undeclared. I mean, that should be part of our non-proliferation um, treaty objectives. So, you know, uh, countries that choose to spend their uh, resources and their taxes on nuclear weapons shouldn't be recipients of foreign aid. I'll make an exception for emergency aid, but as, as a general rule, uh, long term foreign aid programs for countries with space programs and nuclear weapons shouldn't be in it. It should not be on beyond the uh, imagination of the people drafting the amendments for the uh, legislation to factor in that into the amendments. That seems like a very sensible Guido recommendation. Um, but there was another Guido recommendation that we had on the site this week that was also to do with the China issue, because uh, China, as, as this hasn't been widely reported in the UK press, but has slapped tariffs of over 200% on Australian wine and a number of other uh, Australian goods. And, and they did this because they published a list of 12 grievances that, uh, that Australia have um, so, so created against China, whether it was backing human rights in, um, in the Hubei province or backing human rights in Hong Kong or, or calling um, Taiwan, you know, an independent country, all of these different things. Oh, of course, also calling for an independent inquiry into the origins of coronavirus, um, which is something that is an elementary sensible thing to do. But it seems that the Chinese Communist Party is afraid of facts being discovered around the origin of this pandemic. Um, but no, so as a result of all of this, the Chinese Communist Party slapped these egregious tariffs on the Australian people and particularly around wine. So as a result of this, a group, an interparliamentary group from around the world of, I think, 17 different parliaments, uh, hundreds of um, legislators, um, leg legislators uh, MPs from all over the world got together and made a video um, that was basically asking uh, their countrymen to help out 
the Australians this December and buy some Australian wine. And Ian Duncan Smith was in this video, along with a lot of other um, parliamentarians from around the world, which I think we can play a clip of now. After a hard day's work, nothing beats a glass of New Zealand Pinot. Riesling is the final word in refreshing white wine. I'm afraid that accolade clearly belongs to Britain. Next month, we're drinking something a little bit different because our friends need our help. Earlier this month, the Chinese government handed the Australian government a list of 14 grievances demanding that Australia stops voicing out in defence of human rights and the rules-based order. This isn't just an attack on Australia, it's an attack on free countries everywhere. So this December we are asking you all to join us in standing against Xi Jinping's authoritarian bullying. By drinking a bottle or two of Australian wine and letting the Chinese Communist Party know that we will not be bullied. Cheers and also say no bullying from China. And it was quite interesting to see that New Zealand was in that video as well, one of the biggest rivals to Australia in wine producing. So um, it's good to see the sort of free world coming together on this issue. And I'll certainly be buying a healthy supply of Australian wine this December. Um, but we had another China story on the site this week, Paul. Um, not buying Chinese wine, but buying masks made by forced, forced labour from Uyghur Muslims who are being held in terrible conditions and under terribly oppressive conditions in general. But specifically, it turned out that masks that were made uh, in forced labour factories were part of the Daily Mail's airlift campaign. And you may cast your mind back to March, April, when there was horrendous sources of PPE equipment. The Daily Mail uh, took it upon itself to arrange an airlift of uh, uh, of equipment and the only place they could get it was China. Now that was a good endeavour and I'm not trying to knock it but unfortunately for them it turned out that products were sourced from Medwell Pharmaceutical Products. This company was identified by the New York Times as using forced labour in its factories and the Daily Mail was incredibly embarrassed by the whole thing. Um, they got wind of it on Monday and decided to close down their campaign which uh, hopefully means that the um, government and the NHS are now sourcing all the PPE that they need from uh, certified non-force labour factories uh, and we don't need the private sector endeavours to help out. But um, it was awkward for them. We ran the story um, yesterday, uh, yesterday being a Wednesday as we record this, and the BBC followed up in half an hour because they too were on the story, it turned out. But, you know, you snooze, you lose when it comes to scoops. Um, and unfortunately, that wasn't the only story we ran on the site this week that uh, was relevant to modern day slavery. Because on uh, uh, midweek, there was meant to be this big deportation of major criminals to Jamaica. There were meant to be about 50 really violent criminals on this flight and uh, identity politics somehow resulted in Labour MPs, sort of black celebrity figures, lords, left-wing activists uh, deciding to champion the rights of these people who were murderers, were rapists, were paedophiles 
uh, and try and get the flight stopped. And they put all their efforts into it. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of them worked because the flight ended up setting off around around midnight, around one o'clock in the morning, with only 13 of the 50 intended passengers uh, on it. And of those uh, that they wanted, they, they still wanted to get those remaining 13 off, even though they had combined sentences of over 100 years. They included a murderer, they included a rapist. Uh, those people that they got off uh, were evil people. And it's amazing uh, that they're championing this. It's also, I, I cannot get my head around how they think it's not insulting to bring up the Windrush scandal as part of this whole uh, toxic environment issue, which they conflate the two and they they com they they compare the plight of the awful plight of you know NHS workers who came from uh, the Commonwealth to help Britain rebuild in the fifties to murderers, rapists, and paedophiles and and lump them up all because what both issues relate to people with the same skin color it, it's well, that, an, and, you know this is as far as identity politics can go and it's insane that's exactly it because there's nothing that relates these two groups of people one were a group of british citizens who happened to be black another were a group of people who are not british citizens who happened to be murderers and to compare the two just because they had the same skin color and and were being deported one group rightfully so one group absolutely not rightfully so to try and conflate them is absolutely i mean it's, it's it borders on racist actually the names I was surprised to see on the list of people opposing the deportations was Liam Byrne, who was uh, a minister in the government that introduced it, because I think a lot of the young Labour Party forget that this was a widely supported measure introduced by the Blair government. Mm. 2007, of course, voted for by Diane Abbott, who unsurprisingly was right up there calling for them not to be deported. So, you know, I don't blame Diane Abbott. We know she has memory problems, but uh, she really should have tried and stayed consistent on this. Uh, but uh, moving on to something far less contentious, uh, something that energised me just as much as the deportation of evil, and that was Constitutional Questions, uh, a new seemingly weekly segment. Uh, and this week was excellent. It riled up all the right people because the government published the bill that will scrap the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, uh, which viewers may remember was the cause of almost all the issues in the latter half of 2019. It's what allowed Jeremy Corbyn to block having an election, to block giving the people their say over Brexit. Uh, now that's going to be scrapped. And the interesting part about this is that in order to scrap it, uh, the, the government is going to have to confer on itself royal prerogative powers. They're going to have to give Boris uh, powers that lie with the Queen, essentially. And this is not something that has been done in British constitutional history. So as you can imagine, all the usual suspects were mad that such a large amount of power was being given to Boris, but 
it's going to give wonderful results come the next election or the next potential parliamentary lockjam. We don't know. And it's hard to argue that it's a power grab when you're restoring powers that existed, what, five, five years ago? Um, to, to go to go back to the situation that we were that we had in this country for hundreds of years um, up until the coalition agreement um, sorry not five years ago ten years ago um, to go back to the situation before the uh, coalition agreement doesn't strike me as the most controversial thing in the world but it's not just you the listener or the viewer who has been catching up on all of these great Guido stories this week because of course there was a rather influential member of the lobby who was spotted to be reading Guido this week, Paul. Yeah, when um, earlier in the week the tiers were announced for the regions, um, the government website, gov.uk, collapsed under the strain of everyone trying to check out their postcode. We had the uh, PDF version of the document, which we put up on our website, orderorder.com, doing what the government couldn't do. And uh, we noticed that a tweeted uh, photo by Jason Groves revealed what his favorite website was. And you can see in the graphic here that it's one and only orderorder.com, which he has ahead of the BBC, Twitter, and his own Daily Mail website. A good choice. Jason is, uh, of, course, of course, chairman of the lobby um, and the political editor of the Daily Mail. And he knows where his priorities are for news. There's only one place to get it. If you want to be, you're either in front of Guido or you're behind. Right, on that note, thank you for sticking with us for another episode of Guido Talks. I hope you enjoyed it. And we will be going through all of next week's stories at the same time next week. So remember to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us on YouTube if you want to enjoy the video version. And please leave a review on iTunes. It helps us out, it helps the show out, and it helps more people discover Guido Talks. Thanks for listening. Bye.